Welcome back to today's podcast, Doing Tech Better in Government. I'm Brian Fox, and in this series, you'll be hearing from different technologists and technology leaders in government about their efforts to modernize digital capabilities. Together, we will learn about the technology, the processes, and cultural changes they've adopted to rapidly improve their digital services and hear about their experience leading this change in government. Hello, thank you all for joining us in today's Doing Tech Better in Government podcast. I'm Brian Fox with Omni Federal, partnered with ATARC, and today I am so glad to have Trey joining us with the U.S. Air Force coming out of the 505th. Is that correct, sir? You're the commander there? Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your organization, and your role there? Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Trey Coleman. I'm the commander of the 505th Command and Control Wing at Hurlburt Field in Florida. The Air Force is only operationally focused command and control wing. And so our mission is part of the Warfare Center, the Air Force Warfare Center, and, uh, and they're part of Air Combat Command. But our mission is to test, train, and develop tactics, techniques, and procedures for command and control systems and command and control personnel. We have about 1,200 personnel in the wing as a, as a whole. Those are spread out over 14 different locations. So about half of our folks are here at Hurlburt Field and the other half are spread out throughout the United States as far out as, as Hawaii and Alaska. Our second biggest location is at Nellis Air Force Base where we have a, a group and a squadron located there that run the 805th Combat Training Squadron. That's the also known as the ABMS Battle Lab. And then they have three other squadrons. That group has three other squadrons throughout the, throughout the United States. I would say that we're the largest, we're the Air Force's largest repository of command and control subject matter expertise. So the folks that we have in this wing, about two thirds of them are civilians. And most of those civilians are retired from the command and control career field. And the other, the other third are folks that have pretty good experience in doing command and control because they're here as instructors or mentors or advisors. We don't have a whole lot of new folks. We have a lot of subject matter experts. Of our military population of the officers, maybe half or so are air battle managers. I'm an air battle manager. Air battle managers are, are a rated career field in the Air Force, and, and it's the only career field really that, that does command and control from start to finish. So the day you're a lieutenant, you come into the Air Force, you learn how to do command and control, and you do command and control throughout your entire career. And so we've got a pretty good air battle manager presence amongst our officers' corps, which isn't really isn't a big number of officers, but of those officers, about half are, are air battle managers. With these 1,200 people in 14 different locations, we host dozens of exercises every year for training audiences around the world. Uh, we train thousands of students in courses like our Air Operations Center Initial Qualification Training. That's here at Hurlburton. So anybody who gets assigned to go work in an Air Operations Center, they come here and we teach them how to do their job. And there's, I think, 19 different classes within that curriculum, whether you're going to be a, you know, network administrator, or you're going to work in the combat operations division, we teach you how to do that job. It's about a four-week training course. We teach an air component senior leader course, and so that's for, it's targeted for colonels, for 06s who are going to go out to the air components, whether you're working in an air operations center or on the staff itself, the AF4 staff. We teach those 06s what it means to work on an air component and what the mission of the air component is. We facilitate air command and control experimentation in, in many of our squadrons, mostly through our advanced battle management lab, the ABMS battle or ABMS lab at Nellis Air Force Base. That's where we do the majority of our experimentation. But we do experimentation also in our test squadron. We have an operational test squadron. And frankly, we're doing experimentation in our exercises as well. And so, so we do a lot of experimentation in the, in the wing. But that's the mission is testing, training, and tactics, technique, and procedure development in the 505th Command Control Wing. Colonel Coleman, that is really impressive, especially as you describe the opportunities that you all have to facilitate experimentations there 
it really seems like the 505th is well positioned to improve the way the Air Force executes command and control or C2. Can you share some examples of important victories your wing has driven over the past few years? Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking, Brian. Our our mission, you're right, and our people puts us in a really unique position to to help accelerate command and control for the Air Force. Over the past few years, we've had some really big wins, but I'll be honest, we've had some failures as well. But I'll focus on some of the wins to start off with. You know, one of our biggest wins was we completely overhauled our training courseware. This wing has been in existence only for about 20 years or so. Before that, it was a group for, for a few years, but it's existed for 20 to 25 years. And we've primarily used the same exercise scenario to train our students for, for the majority of that time. And that exercise scenario was, was really modern when it was developed in the early 2000s. It was very much focused on the central command problem set, but it had, uh, it had kind of not kept pace with the emerging threat. And, and frankly, that emerging threat is the China, the China threat. And so we, we decided, we made the decision to stand down our courseware. And it took us about, no kidding, we had to cancel courses for four or five months so we could redo our scenario. And it took, it took a year of work, including four months of, co of coursework cancellation in order to redo the scenario to focus on the, more, on the more modern threat. We also combined two of our, our major courses, our senior AOC course and our senior staff course. They were two separate courses. We combined them into a single air component course because we realized that you know, when you're in an air component, it doesn't matter if you're in the air operations center or on the staff itself, you gotta, you gotta figure out how the air component works as a whole. So we combined those two courses into a single course. Another big win was we stood up a lead wing training course. And so we, and this didn't exist two years ago, but as the Air Force has rolled out its expeditionary air base and AF4 gen models, we've been tasked to figure out how to train wings and wing commanders and their staffs to operate as a C2 force enabler as part of an expeditionary air base. And this isn't something that anybody in the Air Force has ever done before. And so as the Air Force is figuring, out, figuring it out, we've had to figure out how to teach it. And so we set up a, a lead wing training course. And to do all of this, to make all this effective, we had to integrate all the modern technology that, that we are working with that isn't necessarily a program or record, but we have to teach it in our courseware so that when students come through, they're exposed to it, at least have a common understanding of it. So when they get to their expeditionary air base or to their air component, it's not the first time they're seeing this software. And so we've integrated new technology into our courseware and exercises like Kessel Runs, Kratos, and Chimera. We also delivered a concept of operations for the Common Mission Control Center. That's a key capability in automating the kill chain. It's one of our battle management test detachments. We, we helped develop software tools to automatically get target data to shooters. And we're working, we're still working, we're continuing to work on the tactics, techniques, and procedures to enable that, particularly the C2 tactics, techniques, and procedures. And then, and then we also built the ABMS Battle Lab. And I, I'll say that it was started in 2019, but over the past couple of years, we've, we've really figured out what to do with it. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but the bottom line is, began with a mission in 2019. It took us a couple of years to figure out what our real value proposition is with that squadron. We had to completely stand down its previous mission. It was a training squadron that, that taught airmen how to operate with an air operations center at, during Nellis Air Force Base exercises. And we had to change that mission to be an experimentation mission. We stood up a new squadron focused on experimentation. We built a lab that allowed us to plug in new and emerging software in a government network and access live operational data from the Nellis range to do that experimentation mission. So those are all those are all really big things and I could go on, but you know, I often still feel like I, we haven't done enough. There's so much more work to do. And so I'm excited for all the opportunities that lie ahead, but, but, but really we've had some pretty big wins over the past couple of years. Absolutely, Trey. And 
it sounds like you all are bravely experimenting, bravely trying new things and, and having a squadron just focused on that seems like an amazing way to push forward on that. But what, what are some critical enablers to some of those successes you've, you've been able to realize? Well, I found that it's really important that we stay focused on production. For the past few years, we've all been sprinting really hard. And I, I say we, and it's not just our wing, but I think the Air Force as a whole, we've been sprinting really hard. We've all been kind of enamored with innovation. And, and that's a, that is a good thing for us. It's a new thing for us because we need new ways of doing business. We have to get out of this program of record mindset. But at some point, you also got to stop innovating. You, you got to start delivering. And I think, frankly, at least for, for my wing, I can say, I think that's where we're at today. I think, I believe that all the tools that we need to modernize command and control exist today, right now. We just need to pull them together to connect them, to do it, you know, intentionally, and then develop procedures to use them and deliver them. And I, and I think the 505th job, what we're uniquely suited to do is just that. It's integration. I don't think, based on my experience here, I don't think our value proposition in this wing is in development. It's on integration. It's on finding the best of breed and plugging them in and integrating them together and introducing them to the warfighter and getting them delivered. And to do that, we've got to stay focused on production. Every time we do something, we need to deliver a product. And that product, whether it's a TTP, a tactic, technique, or procedure, whether it's a test report or whatever, it needs to get into the hands of the warfighter. Absolutely. Wow. And that sounds like a wonderful, you know, call to action, but clearly there's there's friction points. So to that, what, what are some challenges you, what you all are facing, or maybe even what the Air Force is facing to slow you, slow you down, really to challenge that mission? What prevents you from delivering the, the product or products you need to not just develop and experiment, but also integrate and deliver? Yeah, I think this is where we, you know, really start to weave into the applicability of what's happening in my wing to the uh, to the intent of this podcast. This podcast, you know, is about doing tech better in government. And when I think about doing tech better in government, I, I try to think about it from the user perspective, from the perspective of the sergeant or the captain in the squadron who's actually going to do the job. You know, those dudes have good ideas. They have high expectations based on what happens in the commercial world. And, and although we're doing, there's a lot of goodness happening in the Pentagon, a lot of goodness happening at senior levels. When we talk about you know how we're gonna you know share data better and how we're gonna organize better, but how does this look to that captain or the sergeant in the squadron who actually has to do these things? So I come at it from that perspective, and I'll focus, you know, on from that perspective as our on our unit as as a you know as a case study. I'll tell you, you know, I can't tell you how we can do tech better in the government as a whole, but I, I'll tell you some things that I think we've done well in the 505th, and some things that I think we missed. And I can describe to you the ways in which I think we need to do tech better in the 505th Command and Control Wing. And many of those lessons, I think, can probably probably be extrapolated to the broader Air Force. The first example I'll give is, is about how the modern culture of software development has changed the way we look at training. In the past, the way we've done training in the Air Force is, is you know, a tool or a capability or a program is developed. They're, you know, based on requirements, it's produced, it's delivered, and then we figure out, and then we do training, and we train folks how to use that thing after the whole thing's been completed. And that's a pretty long process. The reality is software moves way too fast for that model. We can't wait for requirements to be written and software to be completed. By the way, it's never completed and delivered before we start, before we start training. And so we got to train while it's in development. You know, if you wait, by the way, if you wait for the software to be done, if you wait for our example, I, I refer to Kessel Run a lot because we partner with them a lot and I've got a lot of faith in them for what they're going to do for their Air Operations Center. But if we waited until they were done, we would never, we would never be training because they're always going to be building. And so we've got to start training while they're, while they're in development. You know, and there's three reasons for that. One is, is software is never done. 
right? Software is always in development. Two is the customer doesn't have time to wait. And, and the third is that teaching it in a place like the 505th or using it in an experimental way or an exercise way at a place like Nellis, that, only, that not only gives us the opportunity to teach, it gives the software the opportunity for exposure. And so warfighters who wouldn't otherwise be exposed to it can see it. And when they go out to the field, they go, hey, this software exists, we should be using this. So they already know it exists. It gives us the opportunity to spread the word. And so we've got to be training while, while we're in the phases of development. And so we've had to figure out how we teach our students, even though the software isn't necessarily ready or there's not a modeling and sim application. And, and so, and we also do this during the exercises too. And so we've learned some things. We've learned that when the software is part of a program of record and follows that linear program of record process, one of the requirements before it's released is that there's a modeling and sim version of it that we can use for training and exercises. So we've got to make that a requirement. We've got to work with the software development folks to, to get a modeling and sim application. The second thing we've learned is much of the software that has been developed recently, including some of the awesome product that Kessel Run has released, you know, because it doesn't have a modeling and sim instance, we've got to be more open to figuring out how to teach it in unique ways to teach it. It might just be exposure instead of interface, direct user interface, but it might be pulling it up on a screen and going, hey, this is what it looks like. This is how you use it. But we've got to be better from an instructional perspective of finding unique ways to teach. The point of this, this example is that our organizational culture is still based on the program record model and that the most important tools that we're using for C2 today, they're not programs of record. And so they aren't being delivered with modeling and, and exercise instances, which means that we've got to prioritize training and exercise instances during development. And on the user side, we got to be more comfortable with teaching and exercising using software instances that aren't final and aren't complete. The second example I'll give of things that have kind of slowed us down is, is Manning. You know, I, I talked about the stand up with a battle lab and in 2019, when the Air Force tasked the 505th to stand up the battle lab at Nellis, and I wasn't here at the time, but I can tell you the story of when it was created. You know, it was funded for a bunch of software engineer coder positions, both military and civilian. And I think the idea was that the battle lab itself would develop software to solve C2 problems. We even have a downtown, a little downtown lab in, in downtown Vegas off base in a regular office building that allows us to have super high-speed internet and easy access for industry partners that don't have base access. By the way, it's worth pointing out here that we couldn't get enough bandwidth on base to do the job, to do the coding job. We had to go off base to get sufficient bandwidth. But back to, back to the Manning, here's what, here's what happened is on the civilian side, nobody wanted to work for what the government was willing to pay. So we had a really hard time hiring. And in fact, I would say we never hired more than a third of the vacant positions. And that's true to this day. On the military side, we've had great airmen, most of them, you know, brand new airmen, 22 year olds who would go to tech school and they're brand new coders and they showed up and they loved the job. They were super passionate about the job. They'd get the training, they'd get the experience. And then the first opportunity they'd have, they'd get out of the Air Force and go work for the private sector and make two or three times the amount of pay. And so we couldn't retain them. And, and the bottom line is we didn't have the financial fortitude to incentivize our IT personnel. And so we, what we did is we tried to focus on the intangibles, you know, on, on morale and sense of mission and service to our nation. And that was all really good stuff but it only works in the margins. In the end, everyone's got bills to pay and, and money talks. And the point here is that as a very small subset of the government, we don't have talent management process in place that is conducive to hiring and retaining IT personnel. Creating a good culture and mission can help, but in the end, we've got to figure out how we're doing this from a talent management perspective. And the third example I'll give you is about authorities. And this is a, this is a good win for us. You know, Historically, the Air Force and the DOD in general has held cyber authorities at, very, at, a, at a very high level. We defend our network so tightly, sometimes, you know, it's barely usable to us. One way that's affected us in the test world is that it normally takes very long time to months, maybe years to get approval to test software. Another way it's affected us is that we've never really had good test environments. We just, we don't, we don't build them. We don't, they don't exist. In preparation for this podcast, I called my friend, Stuart Wagner, who's the chief digital transformation officer for the Air Force. 
And he thinks this is one of our biggest problems is that we don't have these test environments. But we've had some successes in this area in, at the shock. At the shock, our squadron commander out there, Lieutenant Colonel John Olin, has been delegated the authority to approve tests if the risk is determined to be at the low or medium level. That, that sounds maybe a little bit trite, you know, but most of our tests are actually at that level. And so delegating this authority allows us to bring in software and plug it in and get it done in days as opposed to waiting months or years. So no kidding, if, if we bring software in and we go, hey, we wanna test this on the range, we can put it through the, the program, I think it's called ACAS. And if it says, yep, low to moderate tests or low to moderate risk, we can say yes and we can start experimenting right away. And that's a huge win for us, it's very fast. Another great example is at our Air Operations Center test facility at the Ryan Center called KACX. X stands for experimental. And there the team, they built out an AOC sandbox. So exactly what Stuart was talking about, about having a test environment. We've got a sandbox at CACX at the Ryan Center that is a, you know, a secure test environment that allows us to plug in software there and test it against the AOC baseline. And so because of that sandbox, we're able to plug in new software and introduce new data into their test environment without exposing the system to operational risk. The point of those examples kind of ties back to the first example. It's that we need to speed up our cycles. We need to be able to develop, to deliver, to test, and to train more rapidly and more responsibly. And I think we can point to these examples at the shock and at KACX as evidence that delegating authorities and creating test environments at the squadron or wing level can help us speed up those cycles. Absolutely. In warfare, right? Speed is your friend. <laughs> speed and agility, for sure. Right. Those are wonderful examples, Trey. Thank you. Um, you know, to that, what, what are some opportunities you see to help the Air Force modernize command and control capabilities? Well, I think, you know, I think right now we've got to have a singular focus on distributed control. A few years ago, the Air Force changed its doctrine. The doctrine used to be, and this is kind of one of the key tenets of air power, it used to be centralized control, decentralized execution. And so, and, you know, that kind of rubbed a lot of folks, including me, kind of rubbed us wrong, right? Like you want to centralize control and only decentralized execution, which means, you know, all the powers in, in the hands of those who have that centralized control. And it creates a lot of vulnerabilities. And so the Air Force changed this doctrine a couple of years ago to centralized command, meaning you've got a single commander, distributed control, and decentralized execution. That distributed control, that's, an, that's a new idea, right? It used to be centralized control, now it's distributed control. And I think there's so much to unpack there. If we really think about what distributed control means, it would really inform our requirements as we develop software and data capabilities. It requires both material and non-material solutions. Kessel Run's cloud-based Kratos, the Kessel Run all-domain operating, operating system, it's a great example of distributed control. Instead of putting a, a bunch of people in a centralized location like we have traditionally done with air operation centers to plan an air tasking order, we can crowdsource that. You know, and I'll give you an example of when we did that prior to this command. I was at the 609th Air Operations Center in 2019 to 2021. And during COVID, we used to bring in LNOs to do all of our master air attack planning. So they'd plan the next day's air tasking order. That's that's the also called the ATO. I know it's confusing between the authority to operate, but so the next day is called call it schedule. And so we'd bring in liaisons from all the different wings and they'd plan, they'd be there for two weeks and they'd do all the planning. We'd, they'd develop schedules every day, flying schedules, the air tasking order, we'd send it out. And then those, do, those dudes would go home after two weeks and they'd go back to their flying mission and we'd bring in new liaisons. We just rotate them through. During COVID, we couldn't move between countries very easily out there. And so, but we had Kratos. And so the LNOs were able to do all the planning distributively, right? That's, that's a form of control. It's a form of, of, of articulating the commander's intent. And so, so we were able to do all that master air attack planning in a distributed way. The map cell at the, the planning cell at the Air Operations Center was empty and those folks were, were, were performing their duties in a distributed manner. That's a great example of distributed control. 
but here's by the way that makes us also more resilient so if the aoc you know were to be you know taken out kinetically or not kinetically or there was whatever a power outage you still have planners distributed around and it makes it much more resilient and so so there's a lot of goodness there and it's it's you know that's becoming the when Kratos is delivered to all of the operation centers, that should be the standard and that should be the, the goal that we're striving for. But there's still folks out there who are trying to, who want to centralize control because we've been operating a centralized control way for decades. It's really hard to break that mentality. And so, and so there's a desire in some circles still to centralize control or to, to federate AOC functions to, uh, to a, few, a few central locations. And, you know, the argument for doing that is usually efficiency. Hey, we can do, we can solve all these problems if we, everybody's in one place and you share the workforce. And that's really, that's usually the, the reason for centralizing, but, but it's not very resilient, you know, and we're not really in the business of, of cost savings. That isn't our mission. Our mission is in, is the business of winning wars. Look, here's the thing about modern technology is, is modern technology makes command and control location agnostic. Modern technology demands that we distribute, you know, why is Zoom a thing? Why is Teams a thing? It's because modern technology enables it and the, the population demands it. Not only does it does modern technology naturally move us towards distribution, but so does our own doctrine, right? We change the doctrine to distributed control. So we got to figure out a way to make that to make that the standard. And so that's kind of the first thing I think we need to do when we think about modernizing command and control. <clears throat> the second, and this is a really big important one, we've got to think about our structure. All of the changes in the Air Force have lasted over time, and in the Department of Defense, are structural changes. You know, weapons systems come and go, tactics come and go, but structural changes last. The creation of the Air Force, the closure of Tactical Air Command. The Goldwater-Nichols Act, the creation of the Space Force, those changes last. And I think that we've got to think about a structural change for command and control. Uh, there's, you know, there's five core functions in the Air Force, air superiority, air mobility, global strike, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and command and control. Each of those other functions has a three or four-star champion, a three or four-star command. You know, global strike command champions the bomber force, air mobility command champions the mobility enterprise. But who's championing the, who's championing the C2 enterprise? There's just no organization that, that runs C2 the way that AMC runs mobility, yet it's still one of our five core functions. And, and in my opinion, this is kind of how we got to where we are today with a, you know, a second generation C2 force and a sixth generation fight. And so I think a structural change is the thing that we need the most in the C2 enterprise. Wow, those are some deep thoughts, Colonel. Yeah, um, appreciate that. And describe almost a bit of an OODA loop uh, as you're describing some of your thoughts there, uh, like the interplay between command and control, doctrine, the organization, all related to technology and that things just iterate. And I know your focus in that 505th is on command and control, but I also know that you all are working in ways really on the forefront of technology because of your mission. With the, this closing question, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between that command and control and technology? Maybe you're gonna describe more on that sort of OODA loop there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, another great question. And by the way, when I talk about the structure of C2, you know, mm -hmm. that's really important to me. And I'm a C2 person by trade, but I think yeah. you could make that same argument for, for IT. You know, are we structured the right way to do IT? And so it's just something that I don't have, you know, the solution for that, but I, but I don't think that we're necessarily structured the right, right way to do technology the best that we can. The, your, your question, though, about command controls reliance on technology is a good one. You know, command and control, I would argue, is one of the oldest functions of warfare, the, the oldest things that we've done in warfare. You know, if command is the authority to, to issue an order and control is the communication of that order, you could argue that the first time, you know, a landowner or a cave dweller went out and gathered some friends and said, hey, we're going to go 
attack this guy because he picked all the berries or, you know, because he took the land or the fish or whatever, you know, that's, that's command and control. Over the, over the centuries, it's probably looked like things like horns and smoke and flags and flares. Those are all forms of control. Those are ways, ways of communicating the commander's intent and in organizing the fight. For the past few decades, you know, as I grew up in the Air Force, we've relied primarily on UHF radio waves, telephones, the internet to communicate. Those are all ways, methods that allowed us to control. And those are the technologies that we've used. But, you know, control doesn't necessarily mean that you need to use technology. But today you can't, you can't really do it without it. You're not going to win if you're not using tech and frankly, the most modern tech. And so I think it's fair to say that every day the Air Force is becoming more and more dependent on IT. When I was, as I was prepping for this interview, I was asking myself, I kind of went down this road where I was thinking, should the Air Force consider itself an IT organization? Should we, should we model ourselves more like an IT company uh, than, than a traditional military service? And, and my answer to that question is no, we shouldn't do that because the Air Force's mission is to fly, fight, and win. And our, that's our core, right? We fly airplanes. We, and, and we might use technology to do that. We use fuel to do that too. And we use oil to do that too, but we're not a petroleum company. And we use technology to do it, but we're not an IT company. We're a war-winning airplane flying, butt-kicking military service. But man, we sure use a lot of IT. And, and so we got to do that really well. But I don't think we need to completely reinvent ourselves. I just think we need to figure out how to structure ourselves in a way that allows us to be more effective in IT management. Whether that's data storage and transport, talent management, research and development, we've got to catch up on those things. And I think that some of the things we're doing in the 505th or that we want to do in the 505th, like prioritizing training, modeling, and SIM, and using emerging non-programmer record technology during training, improving talent management, delegating authorities. I think those are some good examples of ways that we can start making some of the necessary changes that we need to do tech better in the government writ large. Well, Colonel Coleman, thank you so much for coming in today. I sure appreciate your time. Is there anything else that I didn't ask, anything that I missed that you'd like to share? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity to do the podcast, Brian. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing to, to try to bring this together. I recently read an article, it was a MITRE article. I just, I just saw it yesterday and it was about, hey, if you want to do JADC2, Joint All Domain Command Control, right? It starts from the bottom up. And I think there's a lot to that. They actually used Kessel Run as an example. Hey, they delivered one or two software applications and then they, they're building on it from there. And I think there's a lot to that. And so it takes grassroots efforts like this, I think, to find out what's happening at the at the squadron level, at the user level. And we build these things from the ground up and then you figure out how to integrate them and how to bring them together at the, uh, at the higher levels. And so, so conversations like this help us share our ideas and then bring, lead us to the ability to integrate those ideas. So thanks for what you're doing with this podcast. Well, I appreciate that, sir. I appreciate your time too. Um, and for everyone listening in, I hope y'all enjoyed this. As Colonel Coleman said, this is about spreading those experiences, those lessons learned and observations and deep thoughts about doing tech better in government and what's necessary. Sometimes it's just the, the, the courage and, and bravery to, to do things different, try, try new methods. And I think we, we got to hear some wonderful examples of that at the, at the 505th today, including even deprecating an entire training program, taking, <laughs> shutting things down for a few months. And as, as if anyone in government knows that, that is significant. So sounds like some wonderful, wonderful things coming from, from the 505th. So thank you again, sir. And for everyone else listening in, if you'd like to be a part of this podcast, just feel free to reach out um, to me. Um, uh, otherwise, thank you all.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Doing Tech Better in Government. Don't hesitate to reach out if you'd like to be a part of a future podcast, as we'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion, and don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. See you next time, Doing Tech Better in Government.